Hello, this is Ted Floyd. I am the editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine, and I've been out birding for much of the past week. This is my favorite time of the year with the nesting season in high gear. It's also my favorite time of the year because I get to interact so extensively right now with young birders at ABA Teen Birding Camps, in connection with the ABA Young Birder of the Year program, and simply out in the field enjoying birds and nature together. This is also the time of the year when the ABA kicks into its nesting season appeal, an urgent mid-year campaign to raise money for all our young birder programs, as well as the many public services like this podcast, which require funding beyond basic memberships. To contribute to the nesting season appeal, please donate online at aba.org give or call us at 800 850 2473 and give what you can. Programming at the ABA is highly cost efficient and your donation will go directly to resources for young birders and the whole community of people who care about birds and birding. Again, that website is aba.org give and the phone number is 800-850-2473. Thank you for ensuring a bright future for birds and for birders And good birding to all of you. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. It was not necessarily my intention to make this entire episode a Hawaiian bird episode, but, you know, there's not a place in the ABA area more in need of attention these days. I'm excited to invite Lisa Crampton of the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project as a guest. But before we get to that fascinating, albeit sobering, conversation about birds on the island of Kauai, I want to share a story that came out recently that I found pretty amazing and relevant given the topic of the discussion this week. The island of Maui is home to a unique and very rare species of honeycreeper called the kiwikiu. On the ABA checklist, it's called Maui parrotbill on account of its massive parrot-like bill. Uh, its original Hawaiian language name was Lost to Time, so it was given the name Kiwikiu by the Hawaiian Lexicon Committee, which is a group that gives Hawaiian language names to things that are not yet in standard Hawaiian language dictionaries. Anyway, in 2019, 14 captive and wild Kiwikiu were banded and released on the Haleakala volcano above 5,000 feet in the hopes that they would breed on what was at the time some newly restored habitat. Unfortunately, nearly all of them succumbed to avian malaria and the ones that could not be found were presumed dead. So fast forward to this past summer where a Maui forest bird recovery team member, Zach Pelizzo, had spent the morning planting native trees in the area when he unexpectedly heard a kiwikiu singing. He tracked it down and got a look at this bird, presumed dead some 600 days prior, wearing the bands of those released birds from 2019. Foraging, feeding, evidently healthy, having somehow survived this bird plague that has taken so many individual Hawaiian honeycreepers and, in fact, whole species. Pretty amazing story that this bird could have persevered for so long under such difficult circumstances. So in this episode, we're going to talk a lot about the threats to Hawaiian birds, particularly on the island of Kauai, where the Akikiki is, along with Kiwikiu on Maui, among the most threatened birds on the planet. In fact, a recent estimate suggested that these two species could be extinct 
in as little as five years, which is, as I said before, sobering. But maybe there's hope in the resilience of this bird, as David Smith, director of the Division of Forest and Wildlife on Maui, said, this bird shows us that if we have good, safe habitat for these birds, they want to survive. And that's some of what we're going to talk about this week. As I said, Lisa Crampton, director of the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, is with me to talk specifically about Akikiki, mosquito birth control, and what it's like working with these birds on the brink. She joins me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of June, first bit of August, 2021. What is there to talk about but roseate spoonbills? The equally bizarre and beautiful spatula-headed waders are continuing their explosive eruption all over the East, with at least two first records to note this week, including New Hampshire, where a bird was seen in Coos County, and the District of Columbia, where one was seen along the Anacostia River. This was added to Michigan from last week, and I am not even getting terribly deep into the second and third and fourth records of spoonbills that are piling up in places like Ohio, Illinois, and Connecticut, and New Jersey. It is notable that that New Hampshire record overshot Vermont and Massachusetts, which will be backfilled shortly, I can only imagine. Woodstorks and swallowtailed kites have also been on the move this summer with records of the former in New York, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and the latter in Pennsylvania and Ohio. Who knows what southeastern specialty will be on the move next? It has been a wild summer and a hot one, and I don't think that correlation is unrelated. That's all I got for you this week. For the whole spiel, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba. You can also get the information as soon as it happens on our ABA Rarity Sharing Facebook group. That's called ABA Rare Bird Alert. Or you can follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The island of Kauai in the Hawaiian Islands is known as the Garden Isle for its lush scenery and dramatic landscapes, but, but that beauty hides worrying biodiversity loss and an uncertain future for the island's native birds, a decline driven primarily by mosquito-borne avian malaria. But there might be some hope, perhaps in the form of an effort to control mosquito populations that was recently approved for use in Hawaii. My guest today, Dr. Lisa Crampton, is the project leader of the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, so she has been in the middle of a lot of conservation and research efforts around these birds on the island of Kauai. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. How did you get involved in this work with Hawaiian birds? I did my PhD on a mainland uh, mistletoe specialist called the Phenopepala. So I think Mm -hmm. a lot of you your readers will, or your listeners rather, will be familiar with the Phenopepala, spectacular bird. Absolutely. And I was really interested in the conservation of these birds that hold these special niches. So after I finished my PhD, I started looking for postdocs and jobs that would continue me, continue to allow me to work on, on bird conservation. And I took a postdoc on the big island at the USGS uh, research station there doing data analysis on the habitat use and population size of the endangered laysan duck. So that was my first foray into Hawaiian bird conservation. The funny thing is, is that even though I've published several papers on the laysan duck and and spent several years analyzing data, I've never seen a laysan duck other, (laughs) (laughs) other than in a zoo in New Zealand. But no, the laysan duck is in the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. It's way out there, isn't it? Way out there and really hard to get to. 
during that time, my husband and I took a long weekend trip over to the island of Kauai and fell in love with its really relaxed, laid back lifestyle. And of course, the spectacular and beautiful birds that occur up in the mountains of Kauai. And so after my postdoc, when I was looking for jobs, an opportunity came up to become the project leader of the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. And I applied and voila, 12 years later, <laughs> here I am. And it's been a, a wonderful, although at times heartbreaking um, experience. I'm, it's been a great pleasure to lead this project. Yeah. Can you describe what it's like working in some of these places? Because like the highlands of Kauai are sort of famous, even like among the Hawaiian islands, because it's such an old island and it's more of a plateau than a mountaintop. And it's, you know, the Alakai Swamp is one of those like super famous bird watching locations for a lot of these native Hawaiian birds. Like you have suggested, in the middle of the island of Kauai, there is a high elevation plateau. It's about 4,000 feet up. And unlike, say, Haleakala on, on Maui or Mauna Loa or Mauna Kea on the other islands, which are very sort of steep, pointy mountains, mm-hmm. this is basically a mountain with its head cut off. So it is hmm. flat. If you, and if you're a giant, you would look at it and think this is a piece of paper. You can just step across it um, from one side to the other. However, if you're a mere human like we are, you'll discover very quickly that the plateau is incised with a multitude of very channelized streams that make it for a human more like trying to navigate. Well, the the parallel I often use is imagine that you are an ant trying to make your way across a waffle full of syrup. (laughs) So that is the humans trying to navigate their way across the plateau from one side to the other. The waffle is flat, correct? But getting through it means you have to go in and out of all these steep channelized areas. And that area is roadless. It is uh, at, like I said, 4,000 feet. So it has long been a refuge for native birds and plants and insects because it has been so difficult to access. It is the invasion of native plants has been slower up there. Um, The invasion of mosquitoes, which we I think we'll talk about more in a minute has been slower up there. So it is sort of still the remnants of, of old Hawaii with Hmm. a lot of native rainforest and until very recently, a bastion of hope for these, of these native birds. And our, our partners do a lot of work to preserve the character of this area and make sure that weeds don't invade and are, you know, are removing invasive ungulates and really working hard to protect the character of this Alakai Plateau. And, and it's called a swamp because even though there are all these streams that drain it, there are, of course, here and there boggy areas that are very are very swamp like but it no one should confuse it say with the everglades <laughs> swamp right, right. that you can actually navigate in a canoe or a kayak there is not that much deep water anywhere on this plateau because this, the streams are actually relatively small and relatively shallow and, and drain quite quickly yeah um, and the boggy areas are just boggy areas more like say a scottish heath you know you've got this area up here where it's more or less pristine habitat the birds are up here but in the last few years, the mosquitoes have gotten up there too. And, and it's just a situation where the 
habitat is almost pristine, but the birds are just not there anymore. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. I guess I should say you're mostly correct because even prior to the arrival of mosquitoes on the Alakai Plateau, there had been extinctions of native Mm -hmm. birds in the Hawaiian Islands due to the pressures of predation by invasive mammals, due to the unfortunate passage of several hurricanes through Kauai. We had already lost several species of birds. The Hawaiian Islands are so remote that most things were unable to colonize the Hawaiian Islands after they arrived through volcanic activity out of the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. on the on the hotspot. So the hotspot is generating all this lava, it's building these islands, and they're out in the middle of the Pacific Island, thousands of miles away from anything else. And so the only things that could colonize the Pacific Islands were strong flyers, strong swimmers, or things that hitched height on strong swimmers and strong flyers. <laughs> And since most mammals are too big to hitchhike on a strong flyer or too weak to swim 3,000 miles, and same with most reptiles and amphibians, they were, did not colonize the Hawaiian Islands. The mm-hmm. colonizers of the Hawaiian Islands were birds and plants and insects that were either blown off course in a stream or rafted across the Pacific Island or hitched a ride on the wings or the feet of, of mm-hmm. birds or, you know, blow in here as propagules. So the birds here and the, and the snails and, and the plants too evolved in the absence of predation or herbivory from mammals and reptiles. The plants lost their thorns and the mm-hmm. birds lost their fear of mammals. And so they are literally sitting ducks for rats and cats to prey on and 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 same with it they don't defend their nests either yeah. <laughs> so for the forest birds invasive rats have been a really important story uh and and same for the songbirds that used to colonize the lower elevations where rats first invaded all the ground nesters and shrub nesters down there their eggs were eaten by rats and those species went yeah. extinct so the birds a long time ago retreated to this high elevation alakai plateau where the Forest is more intact. There are fewer of these um, invasive predators, although rats don't seem to mind wet weather. So they are also up in the plateau, which is one of the wettest spots on Earth. And they were holding strong there pretty much until two things. First of all, the two hurricanes that came through. So after Hurricane Aniki in 1992, I think it was, wow. uh, we lost a couple of species. They were never, ever seen again. And populations at that time of also started to plummet. It's difficult to dissect how much of that was a result of the hurricane Mm -hmm. and how much of that was the fact that at the same time, with climate change, mosquitoes started to invade the high elevations of the plateau. Because prior to the 1820s, I believe, there were no mosquitoes in the Hawaiian island. They were not natural colonizers. They were introduced by humans, the way rats Mm -hmm. and cats were, on whaling ships. Mosquitoes arrived in the Hawaiian Islands, and then probably a a century or so later, avian malaria arrived in the Hawaiian Islands, Hmm. possibly brought in with fowl or possibly brought in with birds in the pet trade. It's not clear. And so it's only at the beginning of the 1900s that we have transmission of avian malaria by mosquitoes to native birds. 
Huh. I didn't realize it was so recent. It's very, very recent. It's yeah. very, very recent. And in fact, they think that the initial strain of avian malaria that was introduced in White Island was not particularly competent. You know how with COVID, we see right. that some strains are more virulent or contagious than others. This new Delta variant that we've got going on seems right. to be a game changer. Well, same with avian malaria. Avian malaria is related to human malaria, the disease that is so rampant in Africa and, and Asian America and the Latin America, where you know you have to take pills and whatever when you travel right, in those areas. Right. But it they are not intercontagious. So humans cannot get avian malaria and birds cannot get human malaria, but they're they're related and they have the same effects. They interfere with your uh, oxygen uptake and your liver and they make you del- sort of delirious and feverish and, and, and you can die. I'm meandering through my topic here, but because <laughs> the, the birds had never encountered avian malaria before because they were isolated out here in the Pacific right. Ocean, they had no natural immunity. They are highly susceptible to avian malaria, just like some populations of humans are more susceptible than others to COVID. Unfortunately, the honeycreepers, which are the dominant group here, in Hawaii, and there are the ones that are just so brightly colored and have the fab- fabulous beaks and everything, mm-hmm. are highly susceptible to this pathogen. For example, the EED, the iconic EED, scarlet colored with the big long beak, uh, if you do a challenge experiment and you infect 10 EED with avian malaria just once, just one bite from a mosquito that's infected with avian malaria, nine of, the, of 10 of those EED will die. Jeez. Yeah, highly susceptible to this this disease. So what they think actually is it wasn't until the 1940s during the war in the Pacific that more competent strains of avian malaria were introduced to the Hawaiian Islands. Hmm. And at that point, things really started to change. But luckily, because at 4,000 feet, temperatures were still really cool, and mosquitoes don't like cool weather, as we know, mm-hmm. and neither does the pathogen that causes avian malaria. It doesn't like cool weather. It doesn't re- reproduce well in cool weather. The Alakai Plateau and other montane areas across Hawaii continued to be refuges for the forest birds. And so really we saw a retraction in range of all the birds to these higher elevations in general, across the islands. There's a few exceptions. For example, some Hawaiian amakihi on the big island were able to develop resistance or tolerance to avian malaria and have continued to persist at low elevations. But in general, there's been this retraction right. and then this beginning to be this wave of population declines and quite likely extinctions of birds due to avian malaria. And that has ramped up with climate change because it's getting warmer and warmer up at those higher elevations as the planet warms. And we are seeing more and more mosquitoes up there. And we're seeing more and more malaria in blood samples that we take from the birds. Because we can Hmm. use, you know, PCR tests, just like people are doing their COVID tests. Hmm. We can use the same technology to determine if if a bird has malaria or not. And on Kauai, because it's a plateau, there's no altitude that birds can go to. They're just kind of stuck. There is what we call, quote unquote, the mosquito line. That is Mm -hmm. the temperature at which mosquitoes and this disease can reproduce. The mosquito line is dependent on elevation and also latitude. And so it's 
slightly different, for example, on the Big Island, which is right. a different latitude than it is on Hawaii, which is more northerly and a little bit cooler. But it, it is about 4,000 feet. And yeah. the highest elevations on Kauai are 4,000 feet. So there is nowhere for the birds to go to get up higher in elevation and get above the mosquito line. Whereas on the Big Island, there does appear to be, because you know Big Island goes up to 14,000 feet, there seems to be habitat above the mosquito line where birds are continuing to persist. I want to back up just a little bit. And, sure. uh, you know, so perhaps some of our listeners are not necessarily overly familiar with Hawaiian native birds, but can you describe some of the birds that you're, you're working with most closely on Kauai? Um, what makes them so special? So on Kauai, there are eight remaining forest bird species where there were 13 only a few decades ago and probably a couple of dozen songbirds prior mm-hmm. to the the arrival of humans. And, and so what people need to understand is I said earlier on that things couldn't get here on their own. They needed to raft or they needed to be carried by something. Well, humans were that transport vehicle right. for so many invasive yeah. species in the Hawaiian Islands. So when the Polynesians and later the Europeans arrived, and the Polynesians only came a thousand years ago. Yeah. So what people <laughs> need to understand too is that birds and other animals haven't had the time to evolve. A thousand years is not the evolutionary time frame for many organisms. I mean, yeah, it's nothing. bacteria, <laughs> yes, but not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We started to see waves of extinction um, with the Polynesians and then later the Europeans, and now they're accelerating with this, with climate change. There were a couple dozen species on Kauai mm-hmm. prior to the arrival of Polynesians, and then even a couple decades ago, or five decades ago probably, um, there were 13, and now there are eight. And six of those eight species on Kauai are endemic to Kauai. They're found nowhere else in the world, nowhere else in the Hawaiian Islands. They are just found Mm. on Kauai. Four of those six species are these brightly colored honey creepers. There's the Kauai amakihi related to the other amakihis, but it's own species with a much bigger bill. It's a bright Mm. yellow species. It's a generalist. It pollinates, it eats insects, it it does a bit of everything. There is my favorite species, um, the anianiao. One of the great Hawaiian names, too. That's a really fun one to say. Yeah, and it is a lemon drop yellow generalist bird that, you know, again, it takes nectar, also eats insects. It's one of the smallest of the Hawaiian honeykeepers. It weighs as much as 10 paperclips. It's tiny, tiny. And then there are two endangered honeycreepers. There are the akake'e, which numbers fewer than 1,000. Birds is, again, a bright yellow bird. It has a black mask. It has a forked tail. But its most unusual feature is it has a crossed bill. And oh, it wow. uses its crossed bill to pry open leaf buds to get at insects that are hidden in the leaf buds. And it's an ohia specialist. Uh-huh. It's only So ohia uh, metrosideris polymorpha is the dominant tree in the Hawaiian Islands. It's sort of the bedrock of the forest yeah. community in the Hawaiian Islands. And Akike really only use that species. And and actually, to be honest, most of our foresters only, at this point in time, even if they occur in areas where other canopy trees occur, they only nest in Ohia. Hmm. They're very, wow. they don't nest in Olapa or Lapalapa in general. I mean, there's a, a, obviously a few exceptions. And then the, the fourth species is one that you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, which is the Akikiki. And unlike the other three species that I just mentioned, it is not yellow. 
Um, the Akikiki is gray with a white underbelly, and it is an aerial acrobat. It spends most of its time sort of swinging upside down from branches, pecking hmm. in the lichen and the bark, trying to get at grubs. And Akikiki is the one that we are most concerned about at this point in time. Yeah. Recent population surveys suggested that there are 500 Akikiki. That was done in 2018. And since 2018, in the area where we study Akikiki most intensively, we have seen the number of pairs go from 35 to three yeah. in, in, in the span of three years. So, yeah. or I guess it's more like five years. We do not believe that there are 500 Akikiki left anymore. Right. We, we believe that there are likely fewer than 100 Akikiki in the wild. Now, luckily, a few years ago, we did an egg collection for Akikiki, and we were able mm -hmm. to start a conservation breeding flock with our partners at the San Diego Zoo. And there are 40-odd Akikiki in captivity as an insurance population. Yeah. But there may actually only be that many in the wild now. So it's half the Akikiki. Right, due to these mosquito-borne diseases. Yeah. Now, just super quick, the other... So I've mentioned four endemic species. The mm -hmm. other two endemic species are not honey creepers. They are, one is a monarch flycatcher, the elapayo. Now there are elapayos in all the island, but we have our own elapayo here, Kauai elapayo. And it is like a flycatcher. It is an aerial insectivore. It catches things yeah. on the wing. Super cute, super yeah, curious. Definitely. And because it's an older world lineage, it seems to be more resistant to avian malaria. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then oh. the other species is also an, an older lineage that may have had like you know evolutionary history with avian malaria, and it's a Myodestes thrush, so related to solitaire. It, it's called yeah. Kuaiohi, or small kuai thrush. It is endangered. There are only about 500 of them left, but there have been about 500 of them left for a couple of decades, as far as we can tell. So <laughs> even though their populations are critically small, they do seem to be quite stable and, again, more resistant to avian malaria. Their major issue is rat predation. In, in late June, the Hawaii Board of Agriculture approved a permit to allow for the import of mosquitoes with the Wolbachia, Wolbachia bacteria, which has been described as mosquito birth control. Mm -hmm. um, how optimistic are you that, one, this will work, and two, that it can be put into practice fast enough to prevent the, you know, seemingly imminent extinction of a bird like Akikiki? Mm. You're asking loaded questions. <laughs> <laughs> so Sorry do I need that. to explain to your listeners how Wolbachia works as birth control, or are you going to cover that? Uh, you, can, you can talk a little bit about it. I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a bacteriologist or anything, so I don't really understand the, the ins and outs of it. But uh, the fact that it makes, what is it, it makes sterile mosquitoes um, that think they've bred, and then they you know, can't lay eggs or they right. lay sterile eggs or right. something basically like that. Basically inviable eggs, right. Yeah, so, so basically if a male mosquito and a female mosquito carry different strains of this naturally occurring bacteria, Wolbachia, mm -hmm. which already occurs in Hawaii uh, and in, it, you know, in a number of different insect species, including mosquitoes, if the male and female have different strains and they breed, the female's eggs cannot develop. Yeah. And so what we are doing is we're taking a fruit fly strain of Wolbachia and putting it in male mosquitoes, which do not bite. Mm -hmm. So there's no possibility of them either being an annoyance or transmitting malaria to birds because it's when mosquitoes take a blood meal 
that they transmit right. malaria. So what we're doing is we're introducing a new strain to these um, to these male mosquitoes, and then we will release enough mis- male mosquitoes, which again do not bite, into forest bird habitat that they will overwhelm the yeah. number of wild males out there, and so the chances that a female encounters this mosquito male mosquito with a new strain of wolbachia are much higher than her encountering another wild male and she will have inviolable eggs and the populations of mosquitoes will plummet yeah i think it will fingers work. crossed yeah <laughs> no i i i really yeah. i mean this is this technology this or whatever this method has been used successfully across many areas in the world to treat human diseases to to control mosquitoes that transmit dengue and other human diseases mm-hmm. We know it can work. The difference here is we're doing it with a species of mosquito that we've not done it in before, and we're doing it mm-hmm. in wild conservation areas, not in urban areas. But I still right. think that those are e- easily overcome hurdles. What everyone needs to understand is that this is a very expensive technology, and we're going to need everyone to back it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the price tag I heard, it could be several million dollars a year. Well, I mean, when you're thinking in terms of you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service fitting the bill for that, that's a relatively small percentage. I mean, it feels like it's totally worth it. But of course, I'm I'm 100% biased <laughs> in that interpretation. And I'm with you. I mean, I'm with you and, and, fish and, and governments, both state and federal, across mm-hmm. the nation do fund endangered species conservation with price tags greater than that. I yeah, was talking sure. to somebody the other day who was telling me how much money they spend on Chinook salmon, for example. Oh, how much money they've spent on um, you know, sage grouse. In, or condor. Uh, in the or, yeah, yeah, totally. So, yeah. But he, one of the reasons why we are talking is because we need to uh, raise awareness of the little Hawaiian birds out here right. kind of out of sight, yeah. out of mind, so that people on the mainland are willing to back conservation of these birds and not just the ones that they have in their back door. So yeah. number two... Will it be in time to save Akikiki and QBQ, a, a sister species on Maui? Mm-hmm. Quite possibly not. Yeah. Uh, will it be in time to save Anianiao, which is declining, and Kauai Amakihi? Probably, yes. Yeah. Yes, I have good hopes for that. So we are definitely looking at what we are going to do to protect those remaining 40 Akikiki or 100 Akikiki right. that are yeah. in the wild, which might be bringing more of them into conservation breeding facilities. Um, people are talking about translocating them to other islands. However, that also has a fairly long time horizon. Yeah. Yeah. We are very worried, very, very worried about Akikiki um, and, and QBQ on Maui and, yeah. ha- and having a lot of conversations about what we do to protect those species while we wait for this birth control to come on the scene. Yeah. Are you able to take these mosquitoes out into these sort of really distant places? In Kauai, like, do you have to haul these mosquitoes yeah. all the way out into these places and release them? Right. The yeah. latest I heard is that they will get helicoptered to an area where we can Ooh. land because in a forested habitat, you can't always land. And then we will release them from there or we will, if we need to get good coverage, hike them from there. And the idea is you would have enough release sites that mosquitoes, which do travel up to a couple of kilometers... Mm-hmm. will blanket the area. So you need to have yeah. release sites that are about four kilometers apart so that as mosquitoes move out from that, you come up to the two kilometers that they easily travel and have even coverage. 
Yeah, you can begin to see how why it costs millions of dollars. I mean, that's a lot of mosquitoes. It's a lot of mosquitoes, and it's a lot right. of helicopter time, which is, as yeah, everyone knows, right. not cheap. And it has to be done repeatedly. But it's a it's a step, you know. Obviously, it doesn't solve all the problems with rats or any other, you know, invasive uh, issues with those birds. But I mean, it's one less thing potentially, fingers crossed, that uh, that the birds might have to worry about. Right, and and the work we have done over the last twenty years on this project has really shown that for the honeycreepers, rats are a problem, but mm-hmm. a, a much more minor problem compared to this avian malaria. Yeah. The I will say that another background problem is the fact that the hurricanes and to some extent invasive species that came in on the heels of the hurricanes mm-hmm. have caused quite a lot of habitat degradation. The, the birds were already in a precarious situation where they were probably having to work a little bit harder than they should mm-hmm. to make a living. And then you add this disease on top of it. Right, right. As we have seen, again, with COVID affecting some communities because of food insecurity and everything more heavily, the same is likely true of the birds on Kauai because the hurricanes did such a number. It's like living, Hmm. these birds, instead of living in an old growth forest, are living in a, you know, they're living in a young, serial forest instead of a well-developed, mature forest. And so I think their living was already harder. So it is important that we continue to do all the things we're doing to maintain forest health, like yeah. controlling invasive uh, ungulates, like controlling weeds, like replanting, to make give it a healthier forest for the birds. So, yeah. it, so that when we do control mosquitoes, they will come back they into a healthier forest. Have the forest. places. Yeah, it, it is impressive the extent to which birds can respond when they're given a chance to, I guess. When, when birds have habitat, when they have you know, a place where they can find food and shelter and all the things they need, like they, they have the potential to respond pretty quickly. You've taken that enormous pressure off of them, or at least lessened it to a great extent. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I would like to stress to any of your listeners who are planning on Mm -hmm. coming to visit Hawaii is that they need to do their part to make sure we are not spreading more invasive species into our forests. So please, you know, clean your gear, make sure that there are no invasive seeds on it as you move from lower elevations of Kauai, which are heavily invaded by non-native plants, right. to our high elevation forests. But more importantly, we have a new player in the Hawaiian Islands, which is called Rapid Ohiada. I was just going to ask, to what extent is that playing a role? Yeah, so luckily, so Rapid Ohiada is a fungus that rapidly kills Ohia. And as <laughs> I mentioned before, Ohia is the backbone of the Hawaiian forest. And it is easily spread on wind and on boots because it's a fungus. And it causes Ohia to die within a matter of weeks. That's why it's called rapid. So luckily, it doesn't seem to affect intact rainforests, intact Ohia forests, as easily as mixed invasive Ohia forests. And as I have said previously, the Alakai Plateau is largely a pristine Ohia forest. So we have Mm -hmm. not yet detected any of this rapid Ohia death in the Alakai proper. That being said, it has been detected in Koke'e State Park uh, off to the west of the Alakai Plateau where the forests are more invaded and it's only a, you know, a few kilometers away. And it has been detected in some of the lower elevation valleys around this high elevation plateau only a couple of kilometers away in these more mm-hmm. invaded forests. We have our work cut out to make sh- you know, keep <laughs> yeah. it at bay in Alakai and 
people play a huge part in that, making sure that they clean their boots and spray them with alcohol. And there are boot cleaning stations throughout the Alakai Plateau and Cook State Park. So people, please take advantage of those things if you're coming to see our birds in Hawaii. What has it been like watching these birds that you work so closely with sort of disappear? You know, as, as a naturalist, as an ecologist, I imagine it can be sort of I am emotionally trying. Um, do yeah. you have to sort of compartmentalize it at all? Like separate sure. the science from the, from, you know, your, your real personal connection with some of these birds. Yeah, for sure. I, this has been the, probably the hardest year, like really yeah. see, I mean, I went out to Halapakai, our main field camp, which is the area where the Akikiki were kind of hanging in the vest, and now they're, mm. there's only a few pairs. And I spent three days there and didn't see a single Akikiki. I mean, it was gut wrenching. Yeah. Um, but then I come back and I just have to get busy trying to do something right. about right. it. Right. Yeah. And so I can't linger and dwell on that. I think it's a little bit easier for me because I'm primarily at this point, you know, as a project leader and office based person writing grants, writing reports and meetings, doing all this and not living it every day. Mm -hmm. It's easier for me than it is for my crew. It has been really, really hard for my crew. And in particular, it's been really hard for my field supervisor, the main field guy, Justin Height, who came to us in 2015, just as we were beginning the egg collections and was responsible for finding most of the nests that built these captive mm -hmm. blocks. And he is an Akikiki whisperer. And, and in a, <laughs> in, he's the one who's been tracking all these territories and tracking these individual birds in the process of getting to know them. So because we were trying not to collect eggs from more, like we wanted eggs from different parents. So yeah. he really needed to get to know individual pairs. And he is seeing his friends disappear. You know, yeah. he, he spends days and hours with these birds and knows their intimate habits and they are disappearing one by one. It's like seeing your neighborhood empty out. Mm. And I, I can sympathize and empathize with him, but I'm not experiencing it the way he is. Mm -hmm. And we actually have a, a sort of a ceremony planned um, for next Mondays, even, even though the species has not gone extinct yet. We feel like we need to, grieve the individuals that have gone and yeah. too soon like i mean obviously birds die like you know everyone dies sooner or later but mm -hmm. these are birds that are only two years old or three years old instead of living we don't even know how long they live in the wild it's seven eight right. whatever years and it's all happening so fast yeah so it's hard to talk about hawaiian birds without ending there in some in some way well what i say is like the birds aren't giving up so yeah. we can't yeah, we can't. It's it's our responsibility to fight as long as they're fighting. We introduce these problems to the Hawaiian Islands. We like we have to do our best to uh, address them. Yeah, and and it's and it's for us. It's for Hawaiian culture. These birds were a huge part of Hawaiian culture. They continue to be a huge part of Hawaiian, Hawaiian culture. We work really closely with a, lo a local hula group called the Halau, mm -hmm. and they have the birds have inspired them to write new and original compositions and dances because they are so connected, Hawaiians are so connected to the forests and, and the, the divinity of the forest and the, and the divinity. Birds are considered to be kind of, I guess in a way, angels, like mm -hmm. messengers between above and here. Um, and so, and we have to do it for our kids and we have to do it for the ecosystem services that the birds provide. I mean, we haven't even talked about that. I haven't seen dispersal and pollination. Yeah. Without the birds, there's no forest. And without the forest, there are no Hawaiian islands. There are eroded heaps of red dirt slump, slumping into, into the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. 
we have to. Like yeah. that's the other thing. Like you asked me, do I come compartmentalize? Yes, because I could, I just got to keep going. Uh, Dr. Lisa Crampton is a project leader for the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. I'll have a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck to you and your crew and the Kauai birds going forward. Thank you again. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. And, and thank you for allowing me a platform to share my love for these, these amazing creatures. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, you can support it by joining the ABA members or subscribe to our great magazines. You get opportunities to travel with us, discounts to our partners, and the knowledge that you are helping to support birding here in the ABA area and abroad. You can get information at aba.org slash join. I do have some shout outs to make this week. To John Wire of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Lori Large of Oceanside, California, Logan Smith of Topeka, Kansas, Jake Riavi of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Tom Fowler of Manassas, Virginia, Jeremy Burns of Nicholasville, Kentucky, Rodrika Tilly of Brattleboro, Vermont, and John Esham of Marysville, Ohio, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you all so much for that. It really does mean a lot to see these names on the list every week. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that all these images of the scarlet honeycreeper and bright green ohia leaves gives them a very Christmassy Eevee vibe. Technical production this week is by John Lowry, whose dog Aki had a splinter in her paw last week. How sad. And he had to deal with it and was heard to say, Aki, I'll pull it out. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who got into a big argument this week about whether the Hawaiian version of Superman wears a capa or not while surfing. The general consensus is that it would get in the way. You can find us online at ABA.org and on various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I know every single one of these is uniquely terrible, but I don't expect you to laugh loudly. I'm perfectly content if I get aloha. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.